This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. All right, please, please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of James. The letter of James, if you're here with us and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, if you'll raise your hands and leave them up, our ushers will bring you a copy of the Bible and you can take that home with you as our gift. I want everybody, though, to be able to look with me today as we look at James chapter 1, the last two verses of this chapter, verses 26 and 27. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and holy word, and it's a great privilege for me to read this this morning and for us to seek to study these verses in the context of the letter of James and trust the Lord to give us the gift of illumination that we might be transformed. So look with me. James chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. You just want to say, James, tell us what you really think. This is a call. It's a call to be notably holy. Because this is what our Heavenly Father is like. It's a, it's a call to be notably holy because we're His. He's our Heavenly Father. One commentator, Dan McCartney, says this, James often speaks of the danger of deceiving oneself. This quandary has bothered philosophers since before Christ. To deceive someone entails deliberately misleading that person. So a deceiver must know that what the victim is being led to believe is false. But how then is it possible to mislead oneself since one already knows that the error being perpetrated is untrue? Yet it happens with astonishing regularity. James is concerned. God is concerned about our vulnerability to self 
deception. This letter is a gift to us, to protect us. It's a means of grace. Let me just say, I do not think this congregation is characterized by hypocrisy. We are studying it so that that may never be the case. This is not meant to be a corrective series. It's meant to be a means of grace. He's concerned about self-deception. He knows about the problem of hypocrisy. He knows about false faith. And because for James, of how important faith is, he wants to make sure that his original readers have genuine faith. He's aware of the danger of self-deception. He knows there will always be hypocrisy. There will always be hypocrites in the church. He gets this from Jesus. He's very familiar with Jesus' teaching. This, This letter is not about justification by works. It's not about justification. James is a letter about true faith versus false faith. And it's because faith is so important that he continually will draw our attention to the real transformation that always takes place when there is true faith. So we've seen in this first chapter alone that James uses three different Greek words, all translated deceive, to focus on this danger. We've seen it, verse 16. Do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. My beloved brothers. He cares about these people he's writing to very much. Verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. And in our text today, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. He knows we're vulnerable. He's concerned about self-deception. I recently gave my seven-year-old grandson a knife. And he he was very excited about it, very grateful. But then he left the knife that I gave him at my house twice laying around, just not thinking about it. And so I confiscated it. Until he can prove to me he'll take care of it, because I don't want him to lose it. And we were going back over the details recently, as we often do. And I reminded him of how he'd left it with me, not once, but twice. He disagreed. And this, is how, this isn't how he remembered it. This is what he said. Grandfather, you, you don't have to tell me what is in your head. I have something in my head. So you don't have to tell me what's in your head because I already have something in my head. Now, what he meant was, I remember what happened. I am right. I don't don't want you to tell me what happened because I know what happened and what you say happened 
didn't really happen. The main issue is that what's in his head gets his knife back. I kept the knife and he won't get it back till what's in my head <laughs> is in his head. Because what's in his head is wrong. Or if he sends his mother, because every wise grandfather knows that what's in the daughter-in-law's head is truth. <laughs> the point is, is that we're all acquainted with self-deception, aren't we? We're all vulnerable. I think it starts about age seven. Our text this morning is a gift from God. It's a warning passage. It's a means of grace. And we want to unpack it very carefully and study it together. We should love being warned by God. These two verses represent a transition in the letter. It's very abrupt. He's, he's writing like wisdom literature. It is wisdom literature in the New Testament. It's abrupt. And here he gives his readers three distinguishing marks of true or genuine religion or true spirituality. Here they are. Number one, God's people bridle their tongue. Number two, God's people care for the afflicted. And number three, God's people are undefiled by the rebellion that is all around them. The rebellion towards God. So, We'll begin with number one, God's people bridle their tongue. He's, he's pulling together everything he said in chapter one, and he's laying out actually what this letter is going to be all about. These three themes are going to come back to us again and again in this letter. They're kind of headings. God's people bridle their tongues. If anyone, verse 26, thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he, he's deceived. He's deceiving his heart. He had said in verse 19, know this. And, and he's talking about God. And he wants them to know these things. In verse 5, he said, this is, God is good and He's generous. And when you're walking through trials and temptations, He will give you the greatest treasure there is. He will give you wisdom. In verse 19, he says, know this, know these things. He's still on this. He's still talking about God. In verse 18, he had reminded them that of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, by the gospel, we were born again. And he shared his very nature with us when he brought us forth as his children. And he's still unpacking this. His, his, his main point in our text is unpacking this knowledge of God. Because God is he's good and He's generous. He's our Heavenly Father. And as a result, we as His children, we should look like Him. That's the point. This is what Jesus talked about. And again, you're going to see James reflecting Jesus' teaching. He's very familiar with it. This is what Jesus preached on in His most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? So that you may be sons of your Father in, 
who's in heaven. That's what He does. For He makes His sun rise on the evil. The rebellious. The worldly. The sinners. And on the good. And He sends rain on the just. And He sends rain on the unjust. You must be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. The children look like the Father. God's people have been made in His image. This redeemed community called the church is created by God for a purpose. Verse 18, He brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He's brought His people forth through the new birth and He has a purpose that they would be Especially His people. His treasured people. That they would be notably holy. Because He is holy. His work in people has a purpose. The three marks here in these verses are not just coming out of the clear blue sky. These these aren't arbitrary. This is what God is like. And that's why His people should be like this. Why do God's people bridle their tongue? Because God's words are true and right and good. He brought us forth by the word of truth. By the Gospel. His words bring blessing. And so His people bridle their tongue. Because if it's not bridled, it doesn't bring blessing. And the life of God in the soul of man powerfully changes people. It bears fruit. You can tell the difference between the redeemed and the unredeemed. They become like their father. And so James is so convinced of this, he devotes this whole letter to these three points. This is wisdom. He is giving us wisdom. God is giving us wisdom so that as we seek to live for Him in this fallen world, when we experience trials and temptations, we will know how to live. Notice that in these two verses, they have a word in common, Religious or religion. For James, religion is very important. It's an outward expression of a a relationship. Communion with God the Father that's rooted in the heart. It's an outward expression. You can see it. This, This relationship shapes life. That's what he means by religion. A genuine relationship with God is expressed in a person's life, and that's what James calls religion. Our our lives should express what we think about God, and he's warning his readers that there is a religion that is worthless. Verse 26. The question, our text is asking us, we're faced with this today, does our religion have 
value in the sight of God, which is all that matters. Is it a valid religion or is it worthless? And the first test is our communication, our tongue. If you, if you say you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceived. He doesn't call us to silence our tongue. He calls us to bridle our tongue. And in chapter 3 of this letter, he says our tongue possesses in itself all the untamed power of a wild horse. The unbridled tongue will not do the good it's capable of, like God's words do good. It won't do good. It'll do great harm if it isn't bridled. If you're following horse racing, you know about Justify won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and now has the Belmont Stakes to win the Triple, triple Crown. Powerful horse. If you could stand at the track and watch that horse run, you'd be amazed how fast they go, how big they are, how strong. Imagine what that horse could do to a man if that horse wasn't controlled, if that power wasn't controlled. It could do great damage. I can tell you from personal experience. I've told you before about Dixie, the horse from hell. On our farm, Dixie lived on our farm. It wasn't our horse. It was given to a cousin, I think by Satan himself. None of our horses were ridden very often. So they're not like these rental horses you ride. You know, you go rent. They barely plod along on their way to the glue factory. That, that was not the way our horses were. They were left to themselves. They didn't like saddles. And then here we would come one day out of the blue and we're going to ride them. My dad was an expert with horses. Me, not so much. So one day we're going we're to ride Dixie. And this time we had a gallery. We had my uncle who I was always trying to impress and, and we had my girlfriend who's now my wife. People were trying to ride Dixie and People that are much better riders than me were having trouble. Then it was my turn, and per usual, before I even got myself in the saddle, Dixie took off for a low-lying branch on a tree. I, I barely ducked and missed it, and then she was heading for the barn, because there's a beam there, and she could have me decapitated. So I jumped off. Slowly walked back to the gallery while everybody mocked me and laughed at me and I don't think my dad appreciated his boy looking foolish so he I watched him walk over and he grabbed Dixie by the bridle and hit her right in the nose and got on her and walked her around the field like a well-trained poodle at a dog show and then he called me over and he said now get on her and hold the bridle tight. And so I did, and Dixie walked around the field just as controlled as she could be. I think she thought I was dad for some reason and didn't try to kill me. Your tongue is like Dixie, the horse from hell. It really is. 
it needs a bridle or it's going to harm people. It's going to do great damage. And if you're, if you're a child of God, there will be a bridle on your tongue. In, in James' view, the tongue is a litmus test for the heart. The index. He's going to elaborate on this in chapter 3. If we have a true religion, but leave our tongues unbridled, we're deceiving ourselves. Verse 26, we deceive our heart. The tongue, the tongue and the heart are linked so that the tongue is an accurate measure, a barometer of our heart. To think you're a child of God and yet not bridle the tongue is to deceive the heart. You have to understand the, the Bible uses the word heart different than our culture. It's of the utmost importance. In, in the Bible, it's a basket turn. It's the core of our being. It's the guts of a person. It's the real you. It's all the activities of the soul and the mind. It's who you are as a person. And that's why Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It sets the heart, sets the course of your life. God's concern is our heart. What matters is what comes out of our heart. This is why parents who are wise, don't try to just control behavior of their children. They shepherd their hearts. Remember what Jesus said, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James is calling us to self-examination. Right now, the Holy Spirit is pulling up a chair in our lives. This is His Word. And we're being called to examine ourselves by this text this morning. He puts the tongue first. Are you a child of God? Is, is the mark of the child evident? Does your tongue reflect the heart of a genuine believer? We can... We can Examine our heart by examining our tongue, our, our communication. He cares about his, his original readers. God cares about us. We're beloved. He understands they're suffering, they're tempted. God is good and generous. What is my tongue revealing about my religion? What are my texts and my emails, my Facebook page, my internet postings and comments? May it never be, but my Twitter account. What is my communication, all of this revealing about my religion? Point number two, God's people, another mark, distinguishing mark of true religion. God's people care for the afflicted. They do things like visit and care for orphans and widows in their affliction. They care for the afflicted. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
Religion is worthless according to James unless it does this because that's the mind and the will of the Heavenly Father. So He warns us true worship, true religion that is pure, that is undefiled, that is acceptable to the Father, it always includes things like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, caring for the afflicted, caring for the needy and the poor. So, again, the question, you know, do, are we born again? Are we regenerated? Do we have new life? Do we have the life of God in our soul Have we been made alive together with Christ? Have we been saved by grace? And James is practical. He's not superficial. It's too important. He's a pastor. He cares about the souls. He's accountable to God for the souls of these people. He's not going to be superficial. These are hard questions. And he's going to ask them, do we care for the afflicted in their need? See, the the Scriptures consistently reveal this is the heart of God. He's the Father of the fatherless. He's the protector of widows. Psalm 146. I mean, I could read hundreds of verses from the Old Testament. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. That's why this verse, verse 27, is here in this letter. Because God upholds the widow and the fatherless, His children do the same. In Ezekiel 16, the the Lord, it's a prophetic word to His people in Jerusalem, and He's warning His people how bad they are. And He's telling them judgment is coming through Ezekiel the prophet. Thus says the Lord. They are so bad, He says, Ezekiel 16, you make Sodom look good. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know Sodom was a real city and it was so wicked it kind of became a symbol of great sin and evil. And so he's telling them, you're so bad and so evil and judgment is coming, you make Sodom look good. And in the process, he tells them what the sin of Sodom was. What would you say? If you're familiar with your Bible, what would you say? the sin of Sodom was. Think about it, just for a minute. What what was the sin that made the city infamous for evil? Here's what the Lord says is the guilt and sin of Sodom in Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. James says, our concern for the poor and our concern for the needy should bear the characteristics of our Father's concern. Without this, our religion is worthless. And I want you to know, I was struck as I prepared this message. I... I just thought of how Christ-like you are. This is a compassionate church. (laughs) This is a church that loves 
the needy and the poor. And I commend you. I was so encouraged by this. You know, it's costly to care for people like this. People like a child who doesn't have a parent or when we take the burden for someone who's living in a, in a world that's mean and threatening and they feel weak and alone like a widow, it's, it, it, there's not going to be any repayment. And that's why I think it pleases the Lord because it reminds us of the way the Lord has redeemed us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. There's no hope. We weren't, we, we weren't treading water and we needed someone to throw us a life preserver. We were on the bottom of the ocean dead. Hopeless. No hope. And He rescued us. We were transformed by the grace of God. And so, this is what's happened to us. And so, we should have an impulse to care for the poor and needy. God has expressed this ultimately in saving us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. My hero, John Flavel, he's a Puritan pastor, 17th century England, told a great story that, that illustrates how God cares for the needy and how His people care for the afflicted. In 1673, a ship came to Dartmouth, England, where he was the pastor. And, and he described the surgeon of the ship as a, quote, lusty young man of 23 years of age. And during the, the voyage, though, this young man fell into a deep melancholy. He became severely depressed, and Flavel says, which the devil greatly improved to serve his own design for the ruin of this poor man. But the Lord restrained him, and he didn't kill himself, and, and didn't try to kill himself until he got to Dartmouth. So shortly after he arrived, early on a Sunday morning, this young man was in bed with his brother, sharing a bed, and he, he took a knife, prepared, Flavel says, for that purpose, and cut his own throat. And then to be sure, Flavel says, thinking it might not soon enough dispatch his wretched life, he stabbed himself in the stomach also, and he lay there bleeding to death. Now that may sound graphic to you. Listen, I am editing this. You should hear Flavel. His brother, the man's brother, woke up and cried for help. There were other doctors there. He was a surgeon. And they came, but there was no hope for saving him. They they stitched it. He couldn't speak because he had cut his throat. And so they stitched him up so he could speak. And Flavel says, in this condition, I found him. He thought he was within a few minutes of eternity. So he labored to work on his heart the sense of his condition. The man said that he hoped that he had eternal life in God. But Flavel says, I replied that I feared his hopes were ungrounded. For the Scripture tells us no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so, Flavel shared this in such a way that he perceived the man's vain confidence began to fall and some meltings of his heart appeared. And he then began to lament with many tears his sin and misery and asked me if there 
might yet be hope for one that had destroyed himself and shed his own blood. And I replied, the sin indeed is great, but not unpardonable. And if the Lord gave him repentance and faith in Christ, it should be certainly pardoned to him. And finding him unacquainted with these things, I opened to him the nature and necessity of faith and repentance, which he greedily sucked in. (laughs) So he preached the gospel. It's Sunday morning before the service. And John Flavel is preaching the gospel. If you don't like this, there's no hope for you. (laughs) Flavel prayed with him and the man's heart was clearly opening to the gospel and he didn't want Flavel to leave, but it was Sunday morning. Flavel says, the duties of the day necessitating me to leave him. I briefly summed up what was most necessary in my parting counsel to him and took my leave, never expecting to see him more in this world. But beyond my own and all men's expectations, he continued all that day and panted most ardently after Jesus Christ. And in this frame, I found him in the evening. He went all day serving the church. And then he goes, and the guy's still alive. He rejoiced greatly to see me again and entreated me to continue my discourses on these subjects. He couldn't believe Christ would forgive him for what he had done. But Flavel said, Christ shed His blood even for them that with wicked hands had shed the blood of Christ. And that was a sin of deeper guilt than His. Well, he said, I will cast myself on Christ. And Flavel left again. The next morning, the doctors were going to open the wounds, whatever. You know, they didn't know what they were doing back then. They were going to open the wounds. They basically were going to kill the guy, and the doctor said he would immediately die. Probably wouldn't if you'd leave him alone, but Flavel came to be with him that morning, Monday morning, and found him in a most serious frame, I bet. I prayed with him. They opened his wounds. All concluded it was impossible for him to live. They performed their procedures and left him to the disposal of providence. Here's how Flavel concludes. But so it was that both the deep wound in his throat and this in his stomach healed. And the more dangerous wound sin had made upon his soul was, I trust, effectually healed also. I spent, John Flavel, I spent many hours with him in that sickness. And after his return home, received this account from a minister in the man's hometown. The minister said to Flavel, I was much troubled at the sad providence in your town, but did much rejoice that he fell into such hands for his body and soul. You betcha, John Flavel, you have taken much pains with him. I think if ever a great work were done in such a way, it is now. Never grow weary of such good works. One such instant is, methinks, enough to make you to abound to the work of the Lord all your days. Isn't that great? Flavel says, how unsearchable are the ways of providence in leading us to Christ. God cares for the afflicted, for the poor, for the needy. And His people do too. Point number three, God's people 
are undefiled by the rebellion around them. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to keep oneself unstained from the world. James, now, he, he calls us, he calls his readers, he calls us to be unstained by the world. In chapter 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we need to understand what James means by world. What does he mean? He means everything that opposes Christ in our lives. The world is man-centered. The world has a different wisdom. The world has a different goal for your life than God does. The world doesn't reference God. It doesn't reference His law. It doesn't share His values. It doesn't have His judgments. The world is the sinful ways of fallen humanity. It's rebellion. It's rebellious people. That's what James means by the world. The arrogant, self-sufficient, man-centered, self-exalting world can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. It's a, it's a world of sin, of rebellion against the Creator. And so, the one who is a child of God keeps themselves unstained from this opposition to Christ that defiles people. This sinful rebellion. Truly spiritual people who have been brought forth by the will of the Father are undefiled by the world. Every day, our loyalty and our commitment to Christ is going to be tested. And, and the question is, this morning, are we passing the test? Have we been defiled by the world? If so... Our religion is worthless. Just as much as if we neglected the poor and the needy. Here's a specific application for those of you who are old like me. This is from Paul Tripp in his book, Lost in the Middle, Midlife and the Grace of God. There is a war for each of our hearts that's taking place in every circumstance. I think this applies to everyone. In fact, I recommend, if you're 25, read Lost in the Middle. There's a war for each of our hearts taking place in every circumstance, relationship, and location of daily life. It's a war about what kind of glory will attract my attention, command my affection, and control my behavior. When I begin to struggle with the Lord's rule in midlife, what is glorious no longer looks glorious. What is wise no longer looks wise. And what is loving doesn't seem loving. Because I'm not amazed at God's glory. 
I'll be all the more tempted to find life, peace, happiness, security, pleasure, identity, etc. in the shadow glories of the world around me. This can mean eating too much, spending too much. It can mean struggling more than ever before with lust. It can mean buying a sports car, taking a lavish vacation. It can mean a subtle migration away from a God-centered life into a functional worldliness. Typically, this person still hold on to the external habits of the faith, a worthless religion. The love of the world has replaced love of God as that which gives their life shape and direction. Every day, we're bombarded. Every day, we're in a war. And it's a gift from God that we have this text that we're allowed to examine our hearts and we can see are we being defiled by this world that's demanding our time demanding our money. James says, we are not deceived when we remain unstained by the world. That's true religion. We live every moment of the day on the Father's side of this great divide between the world and our Heavenly Father. This is a call to be notably holy, to be different. That's the main point today. A call. Oh, how I want to do that as a church. It's an important moment in this letter. James' words are sharp. We need to examine ourselves. And that's why this morning we are going to conclude with communion. Because these are These are tough words. Now, I want to release the ushers to hand out the elements of communion, but I'd like you to pay careful attention. It it really is possible to get the cup and the bread and listen at the same time. So try to do that. This is a convicting Scripture, isn't it? This is a convicting letter. Most, if not all of us, have, have been convicted. And communion, in, in communion, we're encouraged to examine ourselves. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup receives communion, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, And so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's perfectly appropriate. In fact, it's a great time to do self-examination when we receive communion. Because with communion this morning, we are reminded that atonement has been made for our sins. That The problem we have with God because of our sins has been dealt with through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's deeply meaningful when we share communion together. Go ahead, guys. It's deeply meaningful. 
as we study these verses where we can be reproved, if we study this letter, we can be humbled by our sin. And we can be tempted with despair. If you have a weak conscience, it might condemn you this morning. Even though united to Christ by faith, there is no condemnation. And the the elements of communion this morning are physical reminders of Christ's body broken and His blood spilled for us. We're not simply this morning told again about His sacrifice. We're reminded visibly, tangibly. Christ has dealt with our sin. We accept this morning as we receive communion, God's forgiveness and and our reinstatement back into fellowship with God. Taking the bread and the cup, we confess we're sinners in need of a Savior, but we also confess that through His work on the cross, He is our Savior from sin. We're forgiven and reconciled to God. And so this morning, it's just a great way for us to close the meeting after studying a text like this, hopefully faithfully doing self-examination to be reminded of forgiveness. So often, people struggle to believe God loves them. It's difficult for us to receive God forgives us of our sins. But in communion, we have the truth of redemption portrayed for us. Communion shows us. It's like His forgiveness is so real we can taste it this morning. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said this, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, He also took the cup after supper and He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's what we want to do this morning. Let me ask the worship team to come to the front. We're going to receive communion and return to singing. Before we receive communion, I want to just bow our heads this morning. And confess to the Lord any areas where we are convicted, any sin, confess that to the Lord and ask for forgiveness because of Christ. Father, I thank you that you are good and generous, and kind, and compassionate, heavenly Father. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great joy it is, Lord, this morning to receive communion and be reminded that you sent 
your only begotten Son, that we might be saved from our sins. We praise you and thank you and receive this supper with great joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This is my body, Jesus said, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please stand. Father, we want to sing to you now, Lord, because our hearts are filled with joy. Thank you, Lord. You have brought us forth, and today we sing to you for your glory alone. We give you thanks. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.